In this episode, we're going to talk about this Russian bounty situation, try to put that in perspective without blaming anybody or defending anybody. We're also going to take a look at Tradecraft, what it is, what it isn't, talk about how you're probably already doing it to some degree and discuss the history of it before we get into more episodes on more of the fun Tradecraft stuff. Additionally, we'll take a look at some of the recent posts on Facebook where we had some interactions. I'll read over some of the questions, comments, and responses I had and put them in perspective. It'll actually help us understand some things better, and I'll also use it as a tool to explain how communication works to understand it when you're talking to people as well with your loved ones and anybody else, whether in written or verbal form. That's right here on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. Welcome to episode 26 of Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. So let's put this Russian thing in perspective. Let me start by saying bounties are not that uncommon. During my time in the military, they weren't unheard of, and I am aware of some that were verified. There was a time period where terrorist organizations, very specific ones, put bounties on snipers, where they went after anybody that looked like they had a scope on their weapon. There was also a time when people that were interrogators had bounties put on them, and there was even a time where a specific terrorist told me he was putting a bounty on me for a very specific situation because I got him to say something. I don't know that it ever happened, and I think that guy's dead now. So if you're wondering if the bounty situation is remotely real, it is, as far as the concept of having a bounty on your head. Uh, Could happen from a government that's possible. In this situation, the claim is that an intelligence organization put the bounty out through the Taliban on coalition forces of Afghanistan. Now let's put some perspective on this situation. Let's start with a president and Congress. I say it in that manner because it doesn't matter if you like the president, you like the Congress, what parties won in Rush House, which party is in the Oval Office. When it comes to anything like this or anything affecting service members overseas, sometimes the economy, almost any big situation, a president has nothing to win. In fact, no matter what they do, they realize they're going to lose in the public's eye and the media is going to rip it apart. Somebody is going to go after them. A Congress has everything to gain because they use it for political purposes. Very few people are actually trying to use this information to change the world for the better. They're doing it to get reelected. That's just brass tacks bottom line in my opinion but let's put some numbers on this these are loose numbers but i'm telling you these are very real anybody who's worked in the intelligence community should back this up with any reason of sanity right now around the world just looking at u.s based military forces intelligence services there is dozens probably hundreds of collectors collecting intelligence information whether they're collecting it through signals collecting it by talking to somebody, some form of surveillance, talking to a guy on the street, they are collecting information. And if they're not collecting it, they're writing a report on it. Just to give you an example, you can go into an interrogation booth, walk out of that booth, you'll have to write some sort of summary of your interrogation. But depending on the information you get, you could be writing several pieces of reports that have to do with intelligence value. Now, all these pieces, these hundreds of pieces getting written every day, Dozens an hour, but most likely, are getting passed off to dozens, if not hundreds or more, of analysts or analytical teams that are piecing these together with other items. And they're putting value on them based on how they got the information, how good the source is. They're trying to corroborate it with other reporting. They're also going back to the collector saying, hey, please give us this information. And they're trying to chase it down. Now, there are isolated incidents where a single piece of information is so important it gets way up the chain of command really quickly, whether to a combatant commander, 
or perhaps a president. But that can take a few days or several hours. It's very, very rare to have something that is reported at that level immediately. And this probably wouldn't be in that situation if it's even real. Now, the other thing is, this goes up a chain of command, whether civilian or military. So you think all these military branches, they all have military intelligence separated in different types of units, over thousands of soldiers reporting through hundreds of levels of command, getting up to their higher levels. Same thing with the intelligence agencies. And it gets up high enough that people are getting briefed. Whether it's a local colonel to a general, whether it's the assistant this person to that person who's a subsecretary of this person of the undersecretary of this cabinet, all the way up to eventually getting to the White House, to where the White House receives several people in there, and as well as the president gets his own briefing every day if he chooses to take it from places like the CIA and military intelligence and other assets. So if you think about all this information being collected, whether it's supporting information, new information, or old information, when it finally gets to the president, there's only a few items they're even going to hand him as the most pressing things in the last 24 hours. Very rarely a few things are going to come in as sensitive topics that we talked about right now, as well as all the other dozens of pieces that might be floating around that building. And that's to say, think about the thousands and thousands of things he's not hearing. Because he can't. He doesn't have that much time in the day. That's just the reality of intelligence and how it gets reported. There's just too much information for any one person or even one group of people to have their eyes on all of it. So what that's to say is, depending on how this intelligence was valued, depends on when it even got to the president. Now, there's some stuff saying out there that perhaps some Democratic people were briefed on it a few months ago, perhaps the president was briefed on it, entirely possible. But to say brief is misleading because it's unlikely in most of the situations it was a legit briefing, might be an informal briefing or a conversation where it comes up. And that type of information gets passed through all the time to people in decision-making positions. And based on everything else they're doing in their job, they have to make decisions decide what to do with it. And some people say, well, this, you know, this is bounties on American troops. It's a big deal. Okay, I get that, but we're also fighting wars where soldiers are dying. So by itself, unless it has good supporting corroborating information, it can't be taken at face value and necessarily acted on. The other thing we have to look at is, did it really happen? Well, it's entirely possible it was reported. I don't doubt that at all. Another thing we got to look at is an intelligence organization out of Russia. It's entirely possible when they say it was not good info, however they phrase it, that they found out the bounty situation was true. A, you know, a claim was made, but whoever gave it was not verifiable, not somebody they could believe in. Or we think it's true, it's just not from Russia. Could be that. Another thing some people are saying, well, you know, it's Russia. You know, Putin, Putin, Putin. Like, come on. Even though he came out of the intelligence community, you really think he knows every single thing those guys are doing? It doesn't work that way here. It doesn't work that way in Israel. It doesn't work that way in Canada or Great Britain. There's no reason to believe that works that way anywhere else. I'm sure by now Putin's heard about it because it's been on the news. And honestly, if they did that and he doesn't like it, those guys are probably already fired anyway. The point of all this is, is to put it in perspective, no matter what you hear when it comes like this, especially when something that's connected to intelligence or information, some briefing somebody heard, what are they really doing when they say that? They're trying to pick somebody apart and find a reason to defame them more, put them down more, say they did something wrong or say they did something right based on their own political interests. Fact of the matter is, every time you hear this stuff, there are thousands of pieces of information floating around right now, every second of every day. Dozens, if not hundreds, getting briefed constantly, whether it's at some agency or some deployed unit or somebody 
in a rear echelon in the States researching something. A new report, a new insum, which is an intelligence summary, something else is getting put out and people are consuming that information. And there's way too much. There's just too much information. Which means that no matter what it is, in most situations, and I'm talking almost 100% of the time, it's completely unreasonable to believe that any one person has all of it. Completely unreasonable to believe that there's enough information there to act on it. And nobody's really addressing that. And I just thought it should be addressed. Just because somebody makes a claim doesn't make it real. The media all the time says things that aren't true that they just make up to write a story. All kinds of people do that. Hell, I did it in the intel world. We made up stories all the time to get information from people. That's part of what I talk about on this show, how to persuade people, manipulate people, tell stories to make things happen. Secrets and lies, secrets and lies. Now, as I currently no longer work in the business and have access to the information, I can only put my experience on it and say very likely there was some sort of report on a bounty. May or may not have been connected to that country or an intelligence service. It also can be a feint something that's put in place to cause a reaction, to make people react, to see what they'll do, to see what they'll put on their news. People just look way too much into this and look for things. All kinds of people that don't like the president are using this to say such a horrible person and ignoring soldiers when they have nothing to base that on. All kinds of people that love the president are ignoring the fact that that could be true. It's saying, oh, you're just doing this because you don't want the guy elected. Nobody's really looking at the possibility of whether or not it could be true, how that would actually happen whether or not it even matters. Just remember that it's politics, it's a game. People play to win. They don't play to make the world a better place. And if you haven't seen that or don't believe that, I think you should pay closer attention. Now, recently I got some questions about tradecraft. People want to learn about tradecraft. I think they want to learn about it because they see it in the movies. It's a cool term. doesn't seem like too many people use that term. But let's see where tradecraft comes from. It's essentially... In what was called the National Clandestine Services of the CIA, eventually called Clandestine Services, now called the Directorate of Operations, where you heard terms on the movie like NOC, non-official cover operative. There's also official cover operatives. All kinds of names and titles and things change constantly for security reasons, but generally the mission's the same. Tradecraft was essentially the skills you needed to teach somebody off the street who got recruited into that agency in order to function in that role as a clandestine intelligence officer abroad, meaning overseas, and you would learn all kinds of cool things. And this started, remember, after World War II. So it started with some military things, learning some military tactics, military weapons, foreign military weapons, radio communications gear, how to communicate on the radio, how to jump out of airplanes. They also learned things about live drops, dead drops, brush passes, disguises, camouflage, working with people. And it evolves over time. Eventually, they start learning more things about body language, interrogation, IXS queuing, things like that. They learn more advanced military tactics. They learn some law enforcement type stuff. We get driving schools where they do offensive and defensive driving. We also get explosives comes into it to where now in modern day, they work a lot with open source intelligence, computers, cyber stuff, learning about all the different technologies and surveillance apparatus we have available, how to utilize them, who to talk to along with just all the normal history and structure of the organization and how the intelligence community works. All these things are really tradecraft. It's basically that set of skills. So while it's not completely fair to say this, you could oversimplify it by saying that there are things a lot of people probably do and train on that by definition could fall into that category. 
if you're really interested in the stuff I talk about, especially been following me for years and you read the books and you try to put this in practice, even though you're not formally being taught tradecraft, you are learning some of those skills and trying to. You know, just because you work with firearms or go to a shooting range and do a few drills doesn't mean that you're doing tradecraft. There's very specific types of training. But if you have somebody there that is a professional trained, qualified instructor and shooter, not just some guy from the NRA, but some guy that worked in, say, the special operations community or trained them or worked in high levels of SWAT training in different federal agencies or even some law enforcement ones, some military guys, especially special operations guys, a lot of things they're teaching you are taught in these tradecraft schools. The other thing, too, is I pluralize it to say that tradecraft isn't only taught at one place anymore. At lower levels of intelligence and military intelligence, when they train to go talk to a contact, the entire process, which I don't discuss on here because it's classified, but the entire process of everything they do from planning, executing, writing reports, how they talk to these people, all the steps involved, large portions of that are tradecraft. And a lot of these guys go on to other more advanced schools and intelligence agencies and they realize there are some similarities. There are some things they already kind of know how to do, but when they get taught by the real pros, they realize they could have came in there cold and learned it. They actually didn't need it because all the prior stuff they did was more or less kids play. Now, there are, of course, some tradecraft things I don't talk about or I definitely wouldn't teach over the internet. I kind of dabbled in it a little bit on YouTube. Um, but just like the caveats I've given about some of the stuff I've taught or talked about on here and say this isn't a way to teach you how to commit a crime, it can very easily be used that way. So... I've talked about like when we talked about the houses, what's unsecure about your house, and that's a garage door. If it's a remote, very easily somebody could take that and learn how to break into a house. There are plenty of these skills I don't have to teach you. You can learn on your own. If you want to learn how to pick locks, it's not hard. There are plenty of books out there, plenty of training locks that are actually clear you can see through. You can buy simple lock picking sets, and then you just practice with it. There's plenty of videos out there of people having short little few minutes Showing how to pick a lock if you want to do it. Very useful skill. One thing I lift out of my general list, though, is to answer a question I was asked a long time ago. If I could do it, I know I can't, but if I could do it, if I could learn one specific skill that was taught in a place that would teach something we call tradecraft, what would be the most useful thing? And I tell everybody it's their hand-to-hand, -hand, their self-defense. It's far superior to almost anything out there. There are people that are masters or high-level black belts in disciplines that do get their asses handed to them by people that are highly skilled in self-defense through either what would be a tradecraft school or some specific places in what I call high-level special operations units, which some people knows what that means. What they teach is a mix, a solid mix of things that are constantly studied and evaluated over decades of things from Kali, Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, Krav Maga primarily, as well as a few other things. Plus several people take a lot of training on their own, already have it when they show up and are already in great physical shape. In today's day and age, I think that'd be the most useful skill for the average person to have. So I would tell you that if you're looking to get into martial arts or expending your martial arts self-defense background, I would skip the entertainment value of it. Unless you're really into it, I don't necessarily suggest always focusing on MMA, but there's some MMA type stuff because it's a mixed martial art, which is essentially what is taught. I would start looking at some simple things like jujitsu or judo, which are very useful skills. Branching out from there and getting into things like Krav Maga, eventually leading into Kali and also learning some Aikido, 
you get the right mix of those things and they can be very useful for even people that are weaker, smaller, older, or perhaps have disabilities or injuries that prevent them from being in knockout, drag out fights and want to end things quickly. And I know people have opinions about this and they argue this and they got their egos, but I've seen people with, you know, credentials, awards, trophies, a lot of skill and schools, a lot of knowledge get tore up by people that have no formal training other than what they've got from either certain military units or in agencies, one specific agency where they learn this stuff and they tear right through them. Now that's not to say these other things aren't useful. They're very useful. All martial arts are useful. You learn things like discipline. You get stronger. You learn flexibility. Really great for hand-eye coordination. More formal schools are really great for kids. And I don't mean to go on a long discussion about this. I just want to say, yes, the training is that good, but that doesn't mean you should discount what anybody else has to offer. There is always somebody better. The question is whether or not somebody's better is what you're doing good. That's how you got to look at it. Now, I do want to mention... Go back and listen to episode 25 for the Gray Man giveaway. You still have till the end of the month, almost a whole four weeks, to watch those videos and tell me what you think you're seeing and hearing as far as who's telling the truth, who's not, signs of deception, how to read their body language. All the directions are in there. And I say that because what I did after making that video last week is I put some posts up throughout the week focusing on different types of verbal and nonverbal deception. And I got some interaction on one of them I thought I'd share because I thought it'd be a good teaching point. So on July 2nd, and I'm mentioning this because some people hear this later and they don't want to scroll through everything to find it, but I put up this thing. It said, notice when someone says things like, I was fired. No, wait, I mean, I quit. Or they say something like, so I was out to dinner with this guy and well, wait, actually I was working late. You might have a liar on your hands where people are telling a story and then they stop themselves and correct themselves, especially with something significantly opposed or they're doing it too often. They might be full of it. Doesn't mean it's malicious, might be making stuff up. So I had some responses to it I thought I would uh, put in there. So, so one response I got was saying general neutral words instead of names. So I thought it was important to address that. And I said, well, in some situations, it would take more indicators or foreknowledge of the individual speaking to be sure. Communicating like that, meaning using general neutral words, is kind of a societal norm now, especially in certain situations. So by itself, it can't be necessarily dependable. And I say that meaning by itself without all these other factors. It's not dissimilar to cultural terms of slang, which fluctuates every few years. If you don't think that's the case, if you like the Beastie Boys and you listen to them in the 80s, go watch their documentary. There's all kinds of stuff, the way they talk or talk back then, that I can't believe I did makes me cringe because... Those types of societal words change every 10 to 20 years. So I put in there further on, if you're on a university campus listening to some kids speak and they're speaking this way, that'd be common. That'd be your societal norm. If you're talking to someone that say you're dating, that'd be foreknowledge because you know this person. And they suddenly refer to this unknown person repeatedly as friend and no other names or pronouns, that would be suspect. And I thought that was important to point out. There's a lot of things where we hear something or have an idea and believe it to be true when in fact it tends to be true to a specific situation a person we're familiar with or by itself it's not true there's other factors you may want to include in there another good one was somebody said or giving entirely too many details for an open question or an open-ended question so i put in there that it's not accurate at all 
And I wanted to explain this, so I said, look, an open question requires a narrative response, not a simple yes or no, which is why they are better questions. So the questions I always tell people to ask. Make them form sentences. It gives the respondent or forces them to speak in sentences forming thoughts. By itself, details may be normal or a sign of stress, which isn't the same as deception. Again, by itself, you need other things to look at. Using the example of children, they're often accused of lying when their reaction is just stress from the interaction typically with their parent, because of the body language and the tone of voice that the parent's using. If a prologue is present and lengthy to a question or story, meaning kind of a backstory, but not just a backstory, it's filled with unrelated details that apply unrequested credentials or expertise to the speaker telling the story, definitely is deception. That's been proven time and time again. It will also likely be followed with a strict timeline-based story they just can't deviate from. And if you start to ask questions, they'll have a hard time answering it. Truthful stories tend not to have a prologue. They tend to be more emotionally based. doesn't mean they're displaying emotion. It's just more of the memory of that story. And often have an epilogue or summary focusing on the key points of that story. He responded, correct. That's what I meant to say. Not enough detail for an open-ended question. So it was good information, but I point this out to where he came back and said, that's what I meant to say. And I don't think he probably would have said it with this much detail. But the point was this. Think about relationships when dating, because all the stuff I talk about is just relationships with people, whatever they are. We always say, well, mean what you say, say what you mean. Even if he said, correct, and this is what I said, right? An argument could ensue. But the point is, a person makes a statement and we hear it not the same way they hear it, even if we're using the same words. Even if we say that's not what you said, arguments sometimes get out of control. We don't give that person the opportunity to either come back and clarify or to expound on what they're saying or to correct themselves. That's why it's good, using this example, not to go into an accusatory place or if you say, hey, look, you're wrong, but here's why. Here's why this isn't correct. And here's what I would look at. It comes across better as a teaching point, leading them down a path to where a person can choose to agree or disagree. And I just wanted to point that out. Be careful with that when you're talking to people. It's so easy to get in arguments. Just watch the news. You see it all the time. Now, another one we had is, and I have to, I had to ask him what he was saying because the way he wrote it was confusing. So I'm going to kind of translate it. This guy said, flattery and making statements of such things, such as saying, don't worry, I'm not going to blank you. Like, I'm not going to screw you. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to cheat you. I presume it means a negative, but there could be positives in there too. He goes on to say, in fact, that is their exact intent or their perception of what they think you're watching out for. Best thing to do is avoid and stay away. So I had to think about this one for my thoughts here because I had a long response to it. I said, there's nothing to that specific phrasing indicating that's going to be the outcome. What you've written shows that, presuming this is him in this situation, you're assuming their intent, believing to know that they will perceive the situation different than how you see it. So that leaves us with two possibilities. That you have had a repeated interaction with a specific individual. Those interactions have trained you to believe that this is what a particular statement means, while not realizing you're actually calculating after-the-fact information, meaning what else has happened after that or that it's repeated in order to draw this conclusion. You therefore then apply it to everybody or every situation, which isn't fair. I went on to say that the most likely scenario 
is that you're subconsciously picking up on nonverbal cues and signals, meaning you don't realize they're there, coupled with what you're hearing, and of course, whatever you're consciously saying in this conversation. It likely repeated with a specific person enough times that while true for them, or true to that isolated conversation, it created a belief that any similar conversation also will have the same outcome. So essentially what I'm saying is based on everything you're telling me, while there's ways this could kind of happen, more than likely a person who thinks this being you has a very specific interaction with a very specific person that's repeated. And because of that situation, this is how you've come out and applied it to everybody, which I think would be a mistake. I added on to that, this is a very common result of losing trust in someone. By itself, what you've written by itself is a baseless assumption with no evidence to support the belief that the phrasing is always false for everyone all the time. Very few things exist that by themselves even suggest deception. Like I said, always comes in clusters. Let alone anyone like you've described always suggesting or definitely indicating a person's untruthful. I want to remind you the part where I said, most likely scenario, there is a person in your life that has got you to believe this. He responded and said, I get it. Essentially, what he's saying, I get it. You know, there's some invisible stuff there. Just don't overdo it. So he got that part. But then he added on, you may not know much about the personality I'm talking about. If you did, you'd have just liked it and went on. So as I suggested and guessed, there was very likely a specific person that's caused this belief. I wanted to point that out because a lot of stuff I've ran into when I've trained people, that's been the case. When talking about truth-telling, deception, interactions, body language, a lot of the beliefs people have aren't as cultural as they think. They're based on their own beliefs, sometimes biases. More than half the time, it's based on relationships. Usually some sort of child-parent relationship throughout their life, whether with their kid or their parent, or some sort of romantic relationship or entanglement. Very rarely, but occasionally, it's a lifelong friend where there's been a falling out. And it upset them so much, no matter if it happened one time or a thousand times, they applied this to everybody, and it has not only jaded them a little bit, but kind of screws up their interactions with other people. That's most of it, most of the time. Additionally, even if we get past that on an emotional level, if we don't learn more about it, we're still stuck in the facts as we know them not realizing that they're limited. We think of them as a be all end all that's human nature. We don't look deeper, know how to look deeper, look at other things and go, well, is this specific to that person, specific to this conversation? Do I really see that in other people? And when we try to see it in other people, we tend to ask people questions and we tend to ask the people that are going to tell us the things we want to hear or maybe ignore being honest with us or we know they're going to support what we're saying. Basically a confirmation bias. Also human nature. Man, if you heard that, my phone's blowing up. I need to put that in another room when I'm making a recording. I'm too far in to re-record the whole thing. So to sum everything up, remember you got 26 days left for the Gray Man giveaway. When you hear something about intelligence on the news, don't freak out. Those guys don't know everything. They don't have access to everything. That includes Congress and even a president. So take it with half a grain of salt. Also remember things like tradecraft. I don't use that term a lot. I try to stick with simple terms like skills because that's what they are. I know it's marketable and flashy to say tradecraft or spy or throw out a three-letter agency name, but I kind of focus on really the meat and potatoes of things that will help people learn. The big takeaway from those interactions, just remember communication is important. Give people a chance. Try not to be challenging and overly aggressive. I'm not trying to toot my own arm here. I'm just trying to say it's flies with honey. 
if somebody wants to debate a subject with you or they disagree with you, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't even matter if you believe they're wrong or if they actually are wrong. But if you're not going to speak to them in a way in order to have an adult conversation or try to get them to at least see your point of view or educate them on some information you think they don't have, there's no point in even reacting to it. That's the huge problem with social media. Don't forget to check the show notes for the Independence Day special from the Disagreeable Thoughts and Philosophies of DMR Publications. It was a good show. We look forward to seeing you next time. I'm giving you a good podcast right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight.